Okay, if you want to take your Bibles this morning, we're going to go back to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. And before we get into our message this morning, I need to remind myself of something that the book of James says. James, and this is good for all of us as believers, but it says, in essence, don't say you're going to do this and that because you have no power over what's going to happen today. You say, if the Lord wills, you will do this or that. I've told several people this week, this is my last message in the book of Revelation. The Lord did not will that. This is not going to be the last message unless you want to stay here till one or two o'clock. And we're not going to keep you here that long because there's so much in this last section of Revelation 22, and I don't want to skim over it and miss some important stuff. And so we're going to take in at least another week, um, which is okay. You know, the Lord knows, and he's going to continue to teach us. But we will get through Revelation before the rapture, I hope. So we don't plan on staying here too much longer. But today, back to Revelation chapter 22. Um, I don't think we're going to finish it up today. But we've been looking at this last section of Scripture, of the Bible, not just of Revelation. And um, as we come to the last the end of this last book of the Bible, um, this last section of Revelation, as we see, the emphasis is on the return of Christ. And three times, I mentioned this last week, three times in this short passage, Jesus himself says, behold, I come quickly. He's reminding us of the imminency of his return. And we looked at that, how important it has been for the church since the beginning of the church that they're looking for the coming of Christ. And that's our motivation. You know, uh, one pastor said, if heaven is our destination, heaven will be our motivation. And so we should look at everything through the lens of Jesus' words. Behold, I come quickly. We may not have another chance to do the things that we should do. We may not have another opportunity to share the truth with people who need to hear it. And so all of what we read here is in light of those words. Behold, I come quickly. Jesus has promised that he will return. And there's three messages that are embedded on that foundation. And I introduced these last week. The first one that we saw last week was the verification of his word. He is coming back and everything that we've read in Revelation, and in fact, everything that we read in Scripture will take place. It's going to happen. Now, much of the prophecy of Scripture has already been fulfilled. But what we read in Revelation is going to happen. We saw that because it's taught, it's said by the true and faithful one. Okay. And so we see the verification of his word. We'll see that again today. But there's two other messages. One is the warning. Because he comes quickly, there's a warning to those who are not ready. And then there's the invitation to those who have not come. Okay, today we're going to look at the warning, but I want to start and read starting at verse 6 again today through the rest of the chapter so we can get the context of where we're going to be. So let's start at verse 6 in Revelation 22. The Bible says, And he said unto me, These things are faithful and true. This is, by the way, the angel talking to the apostle John. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. 
Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Lord and Father, we come to you today absolutely dependent upon you for everything. And even as we worship, we know we can't do it without your help. We can't give you the glory and give you the praise without the working of your Spirit in our lives, without his direction. And Lord, we can't understand your word without the Holy Spirit teaching us. And so we pray for your help now that you would give understanding, that you would give enlightenment and illumination to these things that we will study in Scripture today. Lord, we know that you've promised your word will not return void. It will accomplish that thing for which you've sent it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts today, that you would inspire us to work harder, to do those things which you want us to do, but to be always looking for your coming. And, Lord, help us to keep that in mind now as we study together this passage. Lord, I need your help As a man, I am weak, I am not wise, and so I need your Spirit to fill me, to give me wisdom, to give me the words to speak. And I ask for your help now, so that we might hear from you, we might hear your word proclaimed with boldness. Lord, thank you again that we have your word and that we can study together. May you bless during this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get to this closing section again... Uh, Let me just remind you of what we talked about last week. It was the verification of God's word based on Jesus' claim. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the righteous judge. He is the, the true and faithful one, as we've seen in this chapter. And he says, Behold, I come quickly. Three times we read that just now. Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. And so we know it's going to happen because 
It is the words of Jesus Christ. And as we read the rest of this chapter, we need to remember that these are the words of Jesus Christ. Everything in this book is given to us by God. These are his words. And so they are true and they are relevant for us. And if it wasn't that way, there'd be no reason for us to be sitting here studying the passage together. If it didn't matter to us what John is saying and what John received from the angel and what Jesus Christ said, we could just dismiss and go home and it wouldn't make a difference. But it does make a difference because these are Jesus' words. And we need to remember that. And so these two next messages, aside from the verification of his word, first he gives a warning. And that's what we're going to look at today. He gives a warning and then he gives the invitation. And it's entirely appropriate that this warning and then this invitation occur here in this last section, not just of Revelation, but of the Bible. Because those three things really aren't they what the Bible is all about. This is the word of God. I mean, that's told us multiple times throughout Scripture that this is God's words to us. When you go back to the Old Testament, the prophets came to the people as God gave them prophecy, and they said, thus saith the Lord. And we can read about that. So those are the words of God. And God has given us all of what's in this book for examples to us, for our education, for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness. It all is relevant. And so the verification of his word is the most important thing about this. his word. It is his word. But then as he gives this warning here, isn't that what the whole Bible's about? You go all the way back to Genesis, and God created Adam and Eve, and the first thing he did was give them a warning. Don't eat of this tree or you will die. And they didn't heed that warning, and they suffered the consequences. And all mankind has since then. Now, we suffer the consequences of sin not because of Adam and Eve, but because we don't heed the warnings in his word. But that's what his word is for. It's to warn us of the dangers of not submitting ourselves to Almighty God. But then thirdly, in this passage, there's an invitation. And specifically, as we read in verse 18... I'm sorry, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come. And that's the message of scripture. We are all lost. We are all in sin. God has given us the warning about what's going to happen to us all through scripture. We've been given examples of people who didn't heed the warning. We know what's going to happen if we don't listen to the warning. We've read about it in Revelation. And so the invitation is there. Come, experience the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so he ends literally the Bible with a warning and an invitation. Because that's what the message of the whole thing is about anyway. And so with the settled fact that Jesus will return soon, he said, I am coming soon, that warning is more relevant today than it was 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago because we're another day, another moment closer to that time when Jesus will fulfill his word and come. And if we haven't heeded the warning, then time is growing short. We don't know. But the invitation still stands. 
And the problem is, once we get to the end of all these things, when in life we experience the end of revelation, it's too late to accept the invitation then. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm coming soon. And there's a warning about those who will not listen and will not believe, but there's still an invitation open to them. And so today we're going to look at the warning. In verse 11, he starts that warning. We got down through verse 10 last week. Verse 11, the angel tells John, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Now, if you just took that verse all by itself and tried to figure it out, it would make absolutely no sense. You'd be like, what is God saying here? Is he saying that... If you're unsaved, just stay unsaved. It doesn't matter to him. You know, if you're living a life of debauchery, it doesn't matter. Just keep doing what you're doing. If if you've chosen God, okay, keep going that direction, but nothing really matters. See, and that's the problem with trying to interpret a verse outside of its context. Okay? We have to put it inside of this chapter and inside of this book of Revelation to understand what John is telling us here. And what the message is, goes with the warning. This is the beginning of that warning. Jesus is saying in this verse that there will come a time in the middle of all these events when you have no more choice about the matter. You have no more opportunity to change, to accept the invitation. And at that point, he's saying, he that is unjust, he will continue to be unjust. He that is filthy, He will continue to be filthy. He cannot change after that point. When Jesus comes, that is the end. And you get no more opportunities after that. Now, if we have accepted the invitation when he comes, we are righteous, we will continue to be righteous. We are holy, we will continue to be holy. But remember, as we read about the new creation and the new Jerusalem, those people who will not be there, those people who are unjust, those people who are unrighteous, who are filthy, they will not be there. We know that. But they will continue to be unjust and unholy and unrighteous and filthy. Why? Because they will take that character that they lived in earth without Christ to an eternity in the lake of fire, and their character will never change. That's what Jesus is saying here. They will continue to suffer not only the flames of eternity in hell, but to suffer with that character of sin that they lived their life with on this earth, and it will never change. There's no chance to be redeemed after that. And so they will continue as they are. The fires of hell cannot burn hot enough to purge sin away at that point. They will burn forever but never be purged. And so he that is filthy or spotted or morally soiled is what that word means. He will continue to stay soiled with sin throughout eternity. And Jesus is reminding us of that. Behold, I come quickly. The time is coming when the opportunity will be gone and you will be stuck just the way you are. And then Jesus obviously says this about the righteous. Those who have accepted the invitation, they will remain righteous. They will forever remain holy, not because 
we were good people, not because we have impressed God with our lives, but because we have submitted ourselves under the blood of Jesus Christ, under his sacrifice, to cleanse us from that sin, to make us holy. And we continue to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and his authority through the rest of eternity. And so nothing will change except that we'll get rid of the sin-cursed body and we'll get a perfect one. But our character will remain the same. So here the warning is that once you pass from life and enter the eternal realm, there's no second chance. Jesus is saying, whatever you are now, that's what you're going to be forever. And then in verse 12, Jesus states very plainly, he says, Behold, I come quickly, again, there's that reminder, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And so he reminds us that when he comes, he's going to reward everybody according to what they deserve. Now, that sounds a little strange, and really, all of us deserve death. We know that the Bible is very clear about that. So all of us deserve death, yet there are people who will not receive eternal death because they have submitted themselves to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They have claimed him as their Savior, and so they've been washed and cleansed by Jesus Christ. They are righteous and holy through him, and they will receive the rewards of submitting to the Lord, as will those people who have not submitted to the Lord. And so our lives will have consequences long term. Jesus will give us the rewards of those things that we have earned. Now, we can't earn anything of ourselves, really. If we say, well, you know, I want to be a better person, I want to do more good things, I want to love people more, okay? That's a resolution we can probably make within ourselves. And I'm sure, you know, come January 1st, lots of people will do that. I'm going to be a better person this year. I'm going to try to help people more. I'm going to be more generous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, people make resolutions. And they last about 30 seconds usually, okay, because most people have families, and in families there's turmoil, and in turmoil there comes division and strife. And so we lose our sanctification 30 seconds into the new year because we just don't get along with people. That's human nature. That's the sin that we have in us. But if we say, Lord, I need your help, I'm going to submit to your working, I'm going to submit to your spirit in living this life every minute, then good works can come out of us. See, it doesn't matter what good works we do without God, apart from God. Okay, there are lots of people who are not saved who claim good works. They do good things. And I'm not saying they're not doing good things. Okay, but Romans chapter 3 tells us why these so-called good works are not good works because they don't give God the glory. All have sinned and come short of giving God glory. Okay, so to do good works to prove that you're a good person gives you the glory, not God, and therefore in itself those good works are sin. And therefore God, Jesus, when he comes, will reward us for those so-called good works that we've done for ourselves. If we give God glory, and we can only do that through the working of the Holy Spirit, that's true good works that will be rewarded truly by Jesus when we get to heaven. Okay, Everything else he tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 is wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to be burned up. But Jesus says here he's going to come back and he's going to reward everyone according to their works. Now, again, as Christians... 
we will be rewarded according to what we've let the Holy Spirit accomplish through us, not what we've done by ourselves. See, there's that submission. Galatians chapter 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Okay, those are character traits that breed good actions. But the character traits are the character of the Lord. That is Jesus' description of Jesus' character. Now, we show that as we let his spirit work through us. And then his spirit, his character shows in our lives. These are not descriptive of who we are. These are descriptive of who's in us and who's in control. And so as we exhibit the fruits of the spirit and then as we manifest good works, which we've been called to, by the way, as believers, Christ will reward us. And it all comes down to, is the Holy Spirit doing the work or am I doing the work? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we're told, For we are his workmanship, Jesus Christ, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's why God created us, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But good works can't come without the working of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Salvation doesn't come by doing good things, by obeying the Bible, by keeping all the commandments. Salvation comes through submitting ourselves to the sacrifice of Christ, submitting ourselves for him to make us clean, to make us a new person, okay? And so it's not by works which we get salvation, but it says, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's all the blessings of Revelation. Okay, there's the heirs. We've been made heirs of all those blessings of Revelation that we just read in the last few chapters. And then in verse 8 he says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So if good works are futile, how are we going to be rewarded? We'll be rewarded for the good works that come from the Holy Spirit through us. Not good works we just do to prove how good we are. Okay? Now, the wicked, unbelievers, I'll use that phrase, they will receive this, the rewards for what they've done as well. Now, it doesn't matter how good or bad they are. Okay, the matter is they're without Jesus Christ. They've rejected that invitation. So regardless of where on the scale, good or bad, according to man's measure, they will receive the rewards, the just rewards for their works. And it's not going to be pretty. Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 reminds us what are the wages of sin? Death. Anything done apart from God and apart for the glory of God is sin. And the wages of those things, the reward for those things is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And we've seen that in Revelation as well. That's the judgment that is to come. And so Jesus, when he comes, is going to reward those who've submitted to his work and them, 
and give them good rewards in heaven. And those who have not accepted that invitation, he will reward them with the death that they have earned, with the suffering in hell. So our reward will then be based upon how we've submitted ourselves to this invitation. Have we submitted ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives? Are we letting him direct us and guide us as believers? Or do we call ourselves Christians but live our own lives? And when we get to the end, Jesus is going to sort all that out, and we will get the reward that we deserve. He says that. Now, how can we count on the fact that that's going to happen? How do we know that's for sure? Well, look at verse 13, okay? He says, I'm going to give every man a reward. And then, verse 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Who is the one speaking? The Lord Jesus Christ. He affirms again who he is. Therefore, we can count on his word being true. He's the one who was the creator at the beginning in Genesis 1-1 before the world was created. He was there. We just read that in John 1 in our responsive reading. He's the one who will be the final judge of all creation in Revelation. He's the one who will make all things new in the end, the new creation, the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, our eternal home. That's the same one speaking these words. And he is the one who will judge the wicked and sentence them to eternal death. That's the one who's speaking here. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, it tells us he is the one who holds all things together. So Jesus is at the beginning, he's in the middle, he's at the end, and not only is he there, but he is everything, he's in everything, he holds everything together. So it's all about Jesus Christ. That's the one that's speaking these words, and therefore we know they're going to be true. There's no doubt about it. Now, we have an old saying, and I I like to tell people this. I, I used to remind my kids of this all the time. Consider the source. All right, consider the source. Now, today, in today's age, I think the Internet is probably the most prevalent source of information that people go to, okay? And, you know, there, there's a, not an old saying, there's a, pre, a recent saying. It's like, anything you find on the Internet must be true. And that was quoted by Abraham Lincoln. So it must be true, right? Consider the source, okay? Think about the people who are posting stuff on the Internet. Most of them are there just to make a name for themselves or to get people to pay attention to them. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. But we have to consider the source. When Jesus, or when, Jesus when Satan came to uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that serpent came and said, Did God really say? Consider the source. When we start questioning the truth of God, That's not God speaking to us. We have to consider the source. Okay? If if a person comes to you, and this person, and I'm not talking about any of you specifically, okay? But if a person that you know goes to church religiously, but then you know when they go home, they live like heathens the rest of the week. And they come to you and you go, boy, you're the biggest hypocrite I ever knew. Consider the source. Okay, Ecclesiastes, uh, we're studying Ecclesiastes, but in chapter 7, it's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says, Regard not every word that is spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For thou thyself knowest that thou hast cursed others. 
Don't take everything as gospel truth, especially if you read it on the internet. Okay, there is a lot of untruth being pandered today under the guise of truth. In fact, I think just recently there was a politician in our government who said, we can't confuse the facts with truth. I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? See, well, basically what she was saying is, well, we all have our own truth, and my truth is more important than your truth. So it doesn't matter what the facts are, what I think is more important. So we have to consider the sources of where we're looking for truth. But here we know the source, right? This is Jesus Christ. This is the authority, the true and faithful one. And so if Jesus says it, you can count on it being absolutely true no matter what else you hear or see otherwise. And therefore we know we will be rewarded according to what Jesus knows that we deserve. Now, he's the reliable one, and therefore we have to pay attention to him. And so when Jesus says something about you or to you, you had better listen up and pay attention because he is the ultimate authority. Consider the source of who is saying this. Verse 14 confirms that those who submit to him will receive the blessings of the eternal kingdom and the eternal life that only Jesus can give. He talks about rewards, but then in verse 14, he goes on. He says, I'm going to give rewards. You can be sure of that because this is who I am. And then he says in verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and that may enter in through the gates into the city. Now, some of you, depending on the version you have, it may read, blessed are those who have washed their robes. Okay, that's probably a better translation of the original language. But both of them are correct. But it's referring to those who are under the finished work of Jesus Christ, of those who trust in him. It's a statement how that we have been washed in the blood. Okay, We sing a song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? We've been washed by the blood of Jesus. His blood washes our sins away. And so This is a statement, blessed are those who have washed their robes or who do keep his commandments, because not that we've done great works, not that we've done all these good things to prove to God how good of a person I am, but we are blessed because we are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And those who are under the blood of Jesus Christ will do his commandments. In Revelation chapter 7, we see a scene in heaven where John is standing and the angels and the 24 elders and then a whole congregation of people in white robes are bowing down and worshiping at the throne of God. And the angel turns to John, he says, who are these in white robes? And John says, well, you know. And the angel says, yeah, I know. These are the ones who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ who've come through the tribulation. They've been washed and they have white robes. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those that have their robes washed by his blood. 
And those people who have been washed by his blood will do his commandments. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 and 47, as Jesus is preaching to the the people, he says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Why do you call me Lord? Why do you say that you're my disciple, but you don't want to do what I tell you to do? And I think there's a lot of believers that fit that category today, or so-called self-professing believers, someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian, I've been washed by the blood of Christ, but they don't care how they live, and they don't care whether they're living by the Holy Spirit, and they don't care what even the Bible says, because it's really not relevant for us today. You know, we're a modern culture, modern society, modern religion. You know, Christianity has to adapt. No, Christianity has to adapt to God's commands. And we must obey what Jesus says. And if we're going to call him Lord, Lord, then we need to obey him in everything. And so he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, and I will show you to whom he is like. And then he goes on and he tells the parable of the man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm came, the house was flattened. But the man who built his house on the rock, the storms couldn't touch it. And that house stood. And he says, blessed are those who built their house on the rock, Jesus Christ. He was pointing to himself. Those who call him Lord, Lord, and do the things that he says. So he says, there's the blessing. Now, this is the last beatitude, if you will, the last blessed of Revelation, the seventh blessed. Okay? And it, so the, the book here ends in a sense, the same way it begins, because in Revelation 1.3, it says, blessed are those who will do the words of this book. And now Jesus is reminding us again, blessed are those that do my commandments, that are washed, have their robes washed in my blood. And he says, these are the ones that have the right to the tree of life that may enter in through the gates into the city. What city? Well, we just read that in chapter 21, the new Jerusalem. Where's everybody else? The lake of fire. And here's verse 15. He says, where's everybody else? Here's where everybody else is. For without, that means outside of the eternal kingdom, outside of that city, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth a lie. And so he gives a list here of the people that are not going to make it again. This is the third list we've gotten in the last two chapters. These are the people who aren't going to make it into the kingdom of God. And he starts by saying dogs. Now, he's not talking about animals here, okay, although he uses the animal as an analogy to the kind of people he's talking about. In Bible times, especially in the time of Jesus, dogs were not domesticated pets like we have today, okay? If you were going to use probably the most ugly slur against somebody, you would call them a dog. That, That was probably the worst insult you could give somebody in Bible times. Call them a dog. Basically, dogs were wild, stray animals. People didn't want them around. They hung around outside of the city because it was outside of the city that people dumped their garbage and their refuse. Okay, That's where all of the, the sewage drained. In Jerusalem, there's a famous valley just outside of the city called Gehenna. And all of that was the dump for Jerusalem. 
And people would dump their garbage there. All the refuse would go there, and they would burn it. So it was a place of continual fire. There was always something burning. The smoke went up all the time. In fact, you could stand in Jerusalem. You could look out. Oh, you see the smoke. That's Gehenna. And that's where the dogs would go. Now, because it was garbage, that's also where the worms were. So you had fire and smoke. You had worms, and you had dogs. And that's the the analogy that Jesus used in Mark chapter 9 when he said, Hell, or the eternal place of fire, is going to be a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He was pointing to this valley of Gehenna saying, this is where you're going to live forever, not that valley, but a place like this, if you don't accept the invitation. And they had a very graphic picture of that. But that's where the dogs lived, because they were garbage pickers. They were scavengers. And it wasn't uncommon to see a dog outside the city with his fur scorched, trying to dig through burning piles of garbage, smelled like smoke, worms crawling all over him, and that's the picture of a dog. And that is the picture that Jesus gives here when he says, those kinds of people who prefer the garbage outside of my kingdom, that's what they're going to get. They've chosen to live like dogs. They're going to continue to live like dogs, but not in heaven. And then he goes, and by the way, that proves the point that not all dogs go to heaven, okay? I just wanted to throw that in there to remind you of that. Anyway, number two, he goes on. He says sorcerers, okay? Sorcerers. This word is from the root pharmakos. Sounds like pharmacy, okay? But we think of sorcery as witchcraft, the occult, right? And those are related, Now, when we think of the word pharmacy, we think of drugs, right? Prescription drugs, you go to the pharmacy to get your medicine. And they are related. There's a reason why the word sorcery comes from this word pharmakos, because in ancient times, and actually today, the same practice exists, those people who would deal in witchcraft and the occult and Satan worship would use illicit drugs and alcohol to put themselves in a state of mind where they were more receptive to demonic influence. That's the idea that Jesus is giving us here. It's not just those people who are steeped in witchcraft and the occult. It's people whose lives are controlled by drugs and alcohol because the Holy Spirit's not in control. Ephesians 5 tells us, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? It's a contrast. We're either controlled by the Spirit or we're controlled by something else. These people are controlled by drugs and alcohol. And someone whose life is defined by that, well, he says, they're sorcerers. They're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he, uses, uh, he says, whoremongers, that's the next category of people who will not be here. This is from the root word in Greek, pornos. You probably recognize that as well, the word that leads to our word pornography. Okay, pornos. The verb is porneia. I'm sorry, the, the noun source of that is porneia. And it basically means all forms of immorality, whether it's physical carrying out or in your thinking. Remember Jesus said, If you lust after a woman in your heart, you don't have to carry the act out. He said, you're already guilty of adultery. Okay, so that's this word, whoremongers. Anybody whose life is defined by this illicit sexual immorality 
in thought or in deed. Now, this would include any kind of illicit behavior or desires outside of God's framework of marriage between a man and a woman. That is the only place that that kind of activity is allowed to take place in God's framework. And so anything that departs from that would fall under this word whoremonger. And yes, unfortunately, for a lot of people who want to think otherwise, that would include, by definition, people who are gay, transgender, non-binary, or any other variation that is deviant from God's defined roles of a man and a woman. Period. And that's not my words, that's God's words. In fact, if you read in Romans chapter 1, it tells us that there are people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know what's right. They know God's there. They don't care. They want to do their own thing. And God turns them over to a reprobate mind. And the result of that reprobate mind is that now their affections start to uh, be misplaced. In other words, it's not men and women. Now it's men and men and women and women. That's the result of a reprobate mind. God says that very clearly in Romans chapter 1. And so Jesus says, yes, obviously those kinds of people are not going to be in my kingdom. They're not going to partake in the blessings of the new creation. But it's those people's, people also whose minds, whose thoughts, whose desires are completely occupied and defined by these kinds of things as well. So what are you getting your entertainment from is, comes the question for us. We may not be practicing them, but are we watching this stuff? Are we letting it bombard us through the media because that's what the culture is. And if we're believers and have submitted to the Holy Spirit, it should abhor us. We should hate what God hates. But Jesus says those people who are defined by this pornography, pornea, they're not going to be there. Then he says murderers. Now, obviously, we know what a murderer is, Okay. This could be somebody who takes the life of someone else. Now, this would not include war, depending on the war. Okay, there's, that's a long, that maybe that'll be one of the questions and answers, I don't know. But this is a person outside of God's authority taking the life of another person. Okay, it could be because of uncontrolled emotion, out of anger, hyster- hysterical. You know, people have killed other people because they've been overwhelmed with anger, and then they regret it afterwards. Okay, but that's included here. And it could be premeditated murder where they just don't like the person, they want to get rid of them. But we also have to include in that category abortion, since that's the taking of an uh, innocent human life and taking that prerogative away from God, who is the only one, by the way, who has the prerogative and the power over life and death. We don't get to make that decision for other people or for ourselves. God gave us life. God will take our life. And so anybody who takes into his own capacity the decision about life and death apart from God's authority, they are defined as a murderer. And Jesus says, they're not going to be my kingdom either. Then he goes to idolaters. Now, the first commandment, what is the first commandment? Here's your quiz for today. Thou shalt... Oh, I got, I got three or four. I couldn't hear you. All right. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay? He is the only God. Now, I want you to understand when God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, what he's saying is, um, what he's not saying is, Thou shalt not bring any other gods when you're with me. 
Okay? When you're not with me, you can do whatever you want, but don't bring any gods before me. What he's saying is you're not supposed to put anything as a god in the priority of your life before him. Now, can we have God as our first priority and then serve other gods? No. Okay? And, and this always bothered me. You know the little moniker, you know, joy, Jesus, others, you. You know, you put Jesus first, you put others second, you put yourself third. Okay, I think it should be Joe. You put Jesus first, and if you put Jesus first, then you'll put others first. You don't have to worry about you. God will take care of you. Forget about you. Okay, Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, be concerned about yourself all the time after you're concerned about others. So when God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it means he is the only thing that is to be a God in our lives, period. We can't make God first and then, well, you know, we're also going to worship wealth. We're going to worship sports. We're going to worship my job. We're going to worship my family. You can't worship anything else except God. We just learned that lesson back a couple of verses ago when John dropped down and started worshiping the angel. And the angel said, don't do that. I'm just a messenger. Worship God. That's it. And so any type of idolatry, anything that we worship apart from God, not instead of God, but apart from God, is idolatry. And Jesus said, if that defines your life, you can go to church all you want. You can read the Bible all you want. But if what you're worshiping is not God, you are an idolater. And those people are not going to be in my kingdom. As he goes through this list, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and then finally the last one on the list, he says, here the people that aren't going to be in my kingdom are politicians. I'm sorry, whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. You get the idea. Okay, I'm not accusing all politicians, but it's become a stereotype that if you're a politician, basically, your life is defined by a lie. I'm glad there are exceptions to that. But what Jesus is saying here is that your life cannot be defined by an absence of truth or an opposition to truth. He says if your life is defined by lying, if that's the definition of who you are and how you live, you're not saved. You can't be, because saved people live in truth. That becomes the authority for us, God's truth. So if we have a habitual practice of glossing over the truth or withholding part of the truth or twisting the truth in some way to accommodate our own end, then we're not saved. Now, that's not me. That's Jesus saying this. Okay? So I'm not saying, well, these people aren't saved. Jesus is saying these kinds of people are not saved because your life cannot be defined by untruth in any form and still be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that would include those who lie to themselves and others about their own salvation, claiming that because they go to church, because they're a good person, because of their family heritage, because of this, because of that, anything other than submission to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin and claiming him as our Savior, anything other than that is a lie. And there are many people, unfortunately, that lie to themselves and lie to others, saying, I'm going to be in heaven, I'm a Christian, when they've never really put Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And they're not going to be there. And so Jesus says, anyone whose life is a pattern of sinful works, they're going to be denied entry into heaven. Their destiny will be the lake of fire, as we're told in Revelation chapter 20. 
And there they will suffer not only the punishment for their sin, but they will continue in the defiled, wicked character that defined them in life. We read that in verse 11. One commentator put it this way. He said, the worst part of hell is not that Christ will be forgotten, but that he will be unavailable. I think that's the worst suffering in hell is that people will be there knowing that they were wrong their entire lives, that they had the opportunity to accept the invitation to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was there and promised to be there for them if, that's, if they would just submit to him. And that memory will never go away, but there's never a chance ever to repent and have him available to them again. I think that's the worst part of hell. And that's what people in hell are going to be thinking about all the time. Why didn't I? Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I submit? Why didn't I accept the truth? Why didn't I accept the invitation? And then Jesus, again, in verse 16, verifies his word as absolute truth based on who he is. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Who's talking? It's me, Jesus. He lit- this is Jesus talking. Now he says, it's me, Jesus. I'm the only begotten Son of God. I'm the Lamb who was slain and alive. I'm the holy and righteous judge of creation. I am the true and faithful one. And, and look at what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angels... Not God's angels. They're my angels. They belong to him. So he's God, claiming to be God right here. He's the one who created the angels. They belong to him. They serve him. They do only his work. They bring only his message. And he said, I am Jesus. I'm the one who sent these angels to tell you of the things that you need to know in the church. Now, why is it important for us to know these things in the church? I mean, that's the book of Revelation. That's the audience. The churches, so that we will understand what his word is, what the warning is, and know that the invitation is there for us to accept. Everything that we've seen in Revelation, in fact, everything we read in the entirety of the Bible, is his word. And Jesus says, I've sent my angels to testify of these things to you. And in Revelation, as he comes to a close here, he says, you can be sure everything that you have in this book, not just in Revelation, but through the entire Bible, it's true because I'm the one who said it. I'm the one who sent my angels to verify it, and it's to you, the churches, so you will know the message. And as we'll continue to read next week, Lord willing, so that you can take that message to other people and give the invitation. And he says, I'm the root and offspring of David. It's an interesting phrase. How can he, the root, obviously, that comes before David. That's where David came out of. And Jesus is talking about his deity there. I'm the one who created all people. I'm the one who called Abraham, where the Jewish race started. David came out of that Jewish race, and so I am his root. But then he says, I'm also the offspring of David. And there he's talking about his humanity. Not only is he God that was and is before David ever existed, but he is the offspring of David. He was a descendant 
physically of David in his humanity. And therefore, because he's a descendant of David the king who sat on the throne of Israel, Jesus Christ himself deserves by birth on this earth and by appointment by his heavenly father as well to sit on the throne not just over Israel but over the entire world in eternity. So he says, I'm the root of David, and I'm the offspring of David. So at this point in Revelation 22, I don't think there's any question about who's talking and who we're talking about. And he says, I'm the bright and morning star. Now, to call someone a star in biblical times, just like we do today, we talk about athletic stars. We talk about you know stars on TV. All right, you're, you're, you're lifting them up as, I wouldn't say necessarily superhuman, but somebody that's special. Somebody that stands out from the crowd. And that's exactly the phrase here. I am the bright and morning star. It's not just one who stands out. It is the one who stands above everybody else. In fact, in Jewish writings outside of the Bible, when they talked about the Messiah, many times he was referred to as the star. And so this actually is, comes from an Old Testament prophecy, this the bright and morning star, by someone you probably would not expect to have prophesied this. If I was to give you the quiz now, who was the prophet in the Old Testament that prophesied that Jesus would be the bright and morning star? I'm guessing many of you would miss that. Okay, His name was Balaam. Yes, Balaam, the one who was the prophet for hire, and he was hired to curse Israel. And remember, on his way, God sent an angel in the way to block him, and he was so determined to do what he wanted to do, he didn't see the angel, but the donkey did, and the donkey ended up talking to him, reprimanding him, that Balaam. And later in his life, God gave through him the prophecy, there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That was from Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. So we know who we're talking about here. And therefore, his words need to carry weight with us, especially as the church. 2 Peter 1.19, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ. The day dawning in our hearts is the light of the truth that brings us to the recognition that we need to submit to the bright and morning star. And to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, Jesus promised this, He that overcometh and keepeth my words to the end, to him will I give power over nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter that shall be broken to shivers, even as I received my father, and I will give him the morning star. That promise was from Jesus, about Jesus, to his church. If we are overcomers, we will receive Jesus. So we can be absolutely sure that everything that he tells us here is true because there's no question about who's talking. There's no question that he has the power to fulfill all of these things and that he's the authority over all these things to make it happen. And so when he gives this warning, we need to pay attention. And when he gives the invitation, we need to pay attention. Because this is 
Jesus Christ, the true and faithful one, the righteous judge, the living lamb, hopefully our Savior and Lord. Now he goes on, he continues this warning in verse 18. And I'm going to stop here because the warning is integrated with the invitation. And we'll have to take a look at that next week because I don't want to scalp this passage again and and not get what's here. But folks, this entire book, and I'm not talking about Revelation, the entire book are the words of Jesus Christ to us. All of it has meaning. All of it is important. The warnings are important. The invitation is important. The commands are important. Everything that's in here is important for us because it comes from Jesus Christ. And if you don't care about his authority, then Jesus says, you're not one of the ones who's going to be in my kingdom. So I'm going to leave that with you today. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, we do the we practice examining ourselves, as Paul says. And I think that's what we need to do on a regular basis, not just when we sit down here. Because as I said, last week I quoted Peter, and he said, scarcely shall the righteous be saved. We're going to get in by the skin of our teeth. We don't deserve to be there. None of us can do anything to get there. It's only because of Jesus. Now, I was just talking with somebody this morning before the service, and I said, I think I have this picture in my mind sometimes when Jesus comes back and we're on our way up in the rapture and we're looking at Jesus going, I hope he doesn't look at me because he's going to realize he made a mistake. What if Jesus says, well, I'm not so sure about you. Okay, that should be all of our concern. Seriously. And I'm not telling you to doubt your salvation. What I'm saying is work out your salvation with fear and trembling because of who we're talking about. That should cause us fear and trembling. So let's stop there. We'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll come back to this passage next week. Father, again, thank you again for your word. It is convicting. You've told us that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And Lord, you get to the bottom of us because you know us. And I pray that as we engage in your word, as we read it, as we let it become engrafted into us, that it does its job and it exposes who we are truly. It exposes our weakness and it it exposes whether we truly have submitted to your authority as Lord in our lives. None of us want to miss that glorious day when you bring us into the kingdom. And so, Lord, help us all to be sure that not only have we accepted you as Savior, but that we are following you as our Lord so that our lives might give you the glory as you have intended for us. Thank you again for the lesson today. Help us not to forget it. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we'll praise you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Two hundred thirty.